0: Hi, I'm Ryan, and this is my podcast. This is usually the time I would welcome you to wherever you are. That's the name of an NXS record that I always thought was a clever phrase, so I've said it 299 times already at the start of this podcast. For episode 300 of the Matinee Cast, though, I wanted to begin a little different. I wanted to say hello, say thank you for dropping in, and get right into what we're going to do today. I had a few different ideas for what I wanted to do with this episode. Thoughts of bringing in people I've never brought on before, thoughts about turning my format on its head to do something really different. Along the way though, life intervened the way life often does, and with it came the best idea. We are going to spend this 300th episode talking about mental health and film. Depictions, reflections, thoughts, feelings, and a lot more. It's a topic that has burrowed deeper and deeper into the foundations of what these conversations are about in general, and I wanted to give it a full moment in the sun. Now with that comes this introduction and a few things I want to convey. First of all, is that I am no professional or specialist when it comes to mental health. I've done some reading, I've done a lot of listening, and that's it. So my goal here was never to impart wisdom, only to listen to occasionally contribute, and most importantly, interpret. Second, on the topic of listening, what we're gonna discuss is gonna be very real. Some of these topics may be triggering or too sensitive for you, and if they are, I want you to look after yourself. Before the end of this show, we'll be touching on topics like depression, grief, suicide, dementia, health anxiety, and parental relationships. I do hope you can stay and listen, but I am much more interested in your own wellness and your own well-being is my first priority. So if you cannot stick around, that is far more important. Third, this episode is long, but it's broken up into chapters. Please do make the most of them. Take breaks, listen in pieces. I know that I can sometimes make smart ass comments about how I podcast about something one time and follow it by saying, thanks for listening. But this is very, very different. This is just a paper boat that I'm slipping down the creek with quiet hopes that it finds safe harbor. Finally, even though these conversations will touch on some heavy topics, they're all very warm, very loving, and very welcoming to anyone who may be curious. The films run the gamut from coming of age to family animation to fantasy to horror and more. That's really my way of saying be not afraid. So for the 300th time, welcome to wherever you are from toronto canada i am ryan mcneil and this is the matinee cast today we turn our attention to the topic of mental health and film
1: My name is Matt Brown. I am from ScreenAnarchy.com and I write my own stuff at Kendrick.com. I recently published a book of uh, essays about Mad Max, Fury Road. I am in Toronto, Ontario, Canada
0: very nice. Thank you for joining us today um, for this episode 300. I'm, I'm really actually quite happy that you were able to come on here. You've been on the show so many times over the years. You were on the 100th episode, so it's, it's good that you can be on the 300th
2: episode.
1: Good memory. Um, and I, I guess I dropped the mic with the Rise of Skywalker episode, like that was my last time <laughs> three years ago. I mean, that was quite an episode. That was right before mm-hmm.
0: things really started going sideways. So if you're going to tap yeah. out, that's a good moment to do it too. We're talking about mental health and Film, and I asked everybody who's going to be joining me today to pick a film of their own that speaks to something uh, to do with mental health and mental wellness. Um, And you chose a rather interesting selection from our, you know, giving away our age, our mutual childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. You went back to 1984, a film written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson, based on a book by Michael Ende. You went back to the never ending story. Uh, A fantasy film about um, a young boy uh, named Bastion who um, is running away from some bullies. He peels into a bookstore. The bookstore owner, you know, as often happens to children who get interested in reading, gets a book uh, and puts it into the uh, the child's hands. And then he kind of finds himself escaping into this world where the... Uh, great quest is to stave off this encroaching darkness called the nothing uh, and to try to save Fantasia from imminent doom. Um, I may have spelled this out for people already, uh, just in terms of my description. This wasn't even the first film that came to your mind, actually. Why was this the film that you wanted to talk about today?
1: Well, I, it's, you know, it, there is stuff in the text of the film that I think is. Uh, interesting and that we can get into but like for me i think for more importantly for me and maybe my entire generation who grew up with the never-ending story uh is that it first of all traumatized all of us like it's <laughs> one. there was this weird era of fantasy films in the early 80s or mid 80s where they were substantially more scary than entertaining and this was definitely one of them and I think but by doing that, that traumatizing, it also weirdly injected itself as like a language by which, again, my generation, people who grew up with it, um, understand certain premises around depression. Because there are three, I think, key images in the movie that I just hear referenced over and over again in conversations about what the experience of having depression is like. And, you know, the first one is the obvious one, which is the swamps of sadness scene, which speak of like traumatizing a generation. Thanks, Artax. Like yeah. none of us have ever gotten over that moment in the history of movies. So, the talk no. of sadness is a very obvious metaphor for depression. But then, like as you alluded to in the in the in the opening, there's the nothing itself, which I think is a great visual metaphor and conceptual metaphor for how depression sort of eats away at your world and sort of presses itself inward on on the land and the space and the ideas that you have. And then the third thing for me, which is you know not necessarily as specific a metaphor, but it always sticks with me, is the creature or character of Gamork, who is a servant of the nothing, who's a wolf creature who is pursuing Atreyu throughout the movie. And for me, when I become, when I think about depression or the concern that my depression I'm going to have a, a, an episode or a blow up or a manifestation of it. I think about Gamork a lot, that there's this, this wolf-like creature pursuing me. And that it will catch me and then, you know, the nothing will get me. Um, so again, there's, there's plenty in the te- There's a lot to do in the text of the never running story, but just as an image system, I think it gave us so much language around concepts of mental health and mental illness that i i don't know it took me a few days to think of it but it was once i thought of it i was like yeah that's the movie we should talk about
0: thanks for that wolfgang peterson of you know the, the swamps of sadness and and losing uh, you know losing the noble mm-hmm. steed that just cannot fight back and and that's i mean in a lot of ways that's actually a, an an apt metaphor because it's not a matter of will like you don't look at that horse and think the, the horse has just given up it's just yep. the horse the horse just literally cannot move and the sadness is just overcoming it. Thanks for you know bringing me back to that last night. I really appreciate that. On <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I watched the film again the other day too, and I mean, I, I as much as I prepared myself for the swamps of sadness, no. it is still a horrific moment. Yeah, there is no preparing terrifying. yourself
0: for for, no. for that horse just saying "screw it, it's it's done." Yep. Um, beyond that, though, I think what is interesting is the way there is this almost a throwaway point at the beginning of this film to set it all up, which I thought was really, really fascinating, which I had actually completely forgot about that. It uses the child's grief as a jumping Mm -hmm. off point. Like everything that you have described um, is apt for any person, certainly any child that is making their way through um, understanding depression. But to tie it back to the grief of losing a parent at a young age, especially it's, it's really, really, really interesting to see how the film, it wants to just use that as a jumping off point, but it doesn't actually really get into it. And it never actually even comes back to it.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. Like you said, the film starts in a post-traumatic space. Uh, Bastion is traumatized by the loss of his mother. His father is also clearly traumatized by the recent loss of his wife, but Mm is much more of being, you know, I, I guess traditionally masculine about it. Like, you know, we have to move on. We can't let this, thing, which to an extent is healthy. You can't let it dominate your entire existence. But, you know, clearly Bastion has not fully processed his yeah. grief yet yeah. or, or incorporated it into his life. And and there's this very interesting conversation that they have right at the top of the film where where Bastion's father's concern is that uh, he's got his head in the clouds and therefore is not facing his problems. And I I think you're right, the film never comes back and really ties a bow around this, but I think what we're meant to believe is that the modes of fantasy let us face our problems in different ways. I think the reason the metaphors in this movie are so resonant and stuck with me for so long is that they are a way to deal with your trauma and deal with your grief and understand them in a way that you can get your hands around. Right. now like you said the film doesn't make that point directly it's just something that you can find in it because clearly you know boston's choice at the end is i'm going to keep my head in the clouds i'm going to continue believing in my imagination but that somehow heals him anyway like he he uses his mother's name to name the the childlike empress he Flies after his bullies on a back of a dragon, which is one of the best scenes that's ever been made. You know, like so, it, it it's in there. It's just not quite as as directly underlined as maybe we would want it to be.
0: It's it's something that I think if this film were to be remade in the right hands, that may be something that's explored further. Just because I I, I think as well. Like you mentioned that his father, um, <laughs> played by uh, Gerald McCraney. I'd forgotten about that too. That's Thanks right. for that. Yeah, yeah, um, I know it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know how he um, brings on that stereotypical, um, you know, masculine from another era mode of we need to press forward. Um, I, I think that's that's even that's even a generational thing. Like I think we're only really now just starting to understand the the, the real. Um, effects of um, depression and grief on mm-hmm. on anybody, male or female, or, you know, to be decided, um, or even certainly when it comes to children, because that was the whole point of this era and previous of, yeah, parents gone, it sucks, but we we are still here, so we got to move forward. And, and that's the thing is, I, like, if this film were to be made again, um, not that I wanted to, because I really just do like things to live in their own little ecosystem um Mm -hmm. i feel like that might be something that gets explored further of you know the 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 actual grief that bastion is going through and and giving it just one more kind of moment either at the beginning or at the end or something like that because i think there is something to explore there when it comes to um grief within children like we don't actually know if bastion is only struggling with grief or if there's other things at play like he's clearly being bullied so that's also certainly something that he's working through as well and you know he can only escape into bookstores and the strangest school addict i have ever seen in my life
2: Oh, yeah, it's um, great. It's like, wonderful.
0: Know, that's the thing. I got we got halfway through the movie and I said to Lindsay, I was like, What school attic looks like this? Like what school attic just has a wolf head hanging out in it for no reason? Mm-hmm. And a scala- what school
1: attic can be locked from the inside? Like nobody can he <laughs> take the key out of the door as he goes into it and then apparently like that's it. No one will ever get in there. Which you know, hey, it was the nineteen eighties. Who yeah. knows? Maybe God, it was I, possible. I do but love it. your point about the bullying, like that kind of goes back to Bash Bastion's masculinity as well and yeah that's this other thing that he doesn't even really discuss with his father is that he is being also rigorously attacked by boys he doesn't have physical strength he, I, I feel very great kinship with Bastion because basically from this standpoint he's exactly like me at age 8 which is when that movie came out you know like he can't defend himself he would much rather read books than go to math class you know and, and he like, they, there's just no question of him having an athletic existence there's the line about him not uh, trying out for the swim team which if i were to try out for a team when i was his age would probably have been the only one i could have because i'm a reasonably strong swimmer but like even that like i just wasn't a sports guy and that that windowed me off in one area of of how boys are allowed to behave as well so he's got nothing right like he's all he's got is an is his imagination and he rhymes off this list of books that he's read when he goes into Coriander's shop and mm-hmm. it's madness he says he's read lord of the rings I'm yeah. Like, man, I didn't read Lord of the Rings until I was 20. So, yeah, if this is true, sir, good for you. <laughs> yeah, he
0: mentioned, like, he mentioned having read Captain Nemo, and I, my eyes actually looked at my copy of Captain Nemo on our yep. bookshelf, and I'm like, that is one thick volume, mm-hmm. you know? Like, yeah, yeah, having read The Hobbit, sure, yeah, you, you know, you got through 200 pages, props to you. Yeah, Captain absolutely. Nemo is a pretty thick little selection there. Um, mm-hmm. I think. As I, as I went through it as well, thinking about it as a choice of an illustration of um, mental health, mental wellness, depression, all of these themes baked in. I think the one thing I found really interesting as well is um, on Atreyu's journey, when he's set out to try to, to try to save Fantasia from the nothing, to try to save his realm from this encroaching darkness, he's told, you have to leave your weapons behind. Um, Mm -hmm. I found that really, really fascinating because we live in an age where it's a wealth of information. We live in an age where if you admit openly that you're going through something, if you admit openly that you're having a down day, you'll get these copious amounts of suggestions like, have you tried meditation? Have you tried yoga? How's your water? You know, like it's it's everything and anything of, oh, I know a guy, you know. Um, I found it really, really fascinating that on this journey, that while it is very much a hero's quest, it's a hero's quest that comes without armor, without sword, without shield. The, uh, you know, that's that's that was interesting to me, especially because my my constant metaphor for days where I'm working on my mental health is I I, I refer to it as shields up. I use the the Mm -hmm. Wonder Woman crossing Nomad's Land metaphor of just having the shield and pressing forward, but this movie uses the analogy of you're going to go on this, and you're just going to go on this as you are, without sword, without shield, without bow. Um, That, to me, is fascinating.
1: Yeah, and there is a strange runner through this movie that, again, is a children's movie and, and perhaps speaks to why it was so frightening, is that throughout the movie it's giving you this strange world where Over and over again, your inner feelings and your secret thoughts are exposed. They're not protected by shields or swords or anything. And they can basically kill you everywhere you go, right? If you go into the swamps of sadness and you let the despair take you, you will sink and you will die. If you go past the sphinxes and you don't believe yourself worthy, they will laser beam you to death. Like there's this weird runner throughout the movie that your inner self is exposed like a raw, like when Atreyu reaches the second uh, gate at the, after the Sphinxes, he sees a reflection of this lonely child reading in an attic, right? There's this horrible mirror moment, you know, like there's this sense of exposure, but there's no protection for your raw feelings in this, in this realm. You're always going to be attacked for them. And I think that makes it very unsettling as well. It makes it interesting as an adult looking back, but as a child watching it, probably very unsettling that, that your innermost thoughts and your innermost feelings are just visible and can be used against you everywhere.
0: And it's I mean, you know, when you say it like that, I think that it's it's apt because that's that's mm-hmm. really the truth is that when it comes to mental wellness and mental health, you can Have every tool in the box, assuming that you are privileged enough to have access to those tools of things like therapy and practice and routines and medication and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's still you know it's it's still only going to be as strong as what looks back at you in that reflection.
1: Absolutely, I I noticed throughout my life that it has provided a kind of recurring image system that people reference when they're talking about this. And I I think you probably know, and I'll, I'll tell your listeners as well, like that idea that the pop culture that we ingest, particularly the pop culture, not even like the, you know, quote unquote, serious films or serious books, but like sort of the, the, the pulpier stuff, the idea that that provides us with image systems and metaphors and 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 ways to understand parts of ourselves that might otherwise be a little bit too complex to uh articulate clearly that has just been my like lifelong fascination that that idea that within pop culture there is a kernel of mythology and that within mythology there are these ways to take internal forces and externalize them and therefore grapple with them and understand them that's kind of why i'm interested in the whole thing that might actually be why i'm interested in movies so for me with never ending story particularly it's just again it's a particularly rich source of images that I can use when talking with friends and family and people my age about some of these concepts and in a, a somewhat safe way, right? Because you're still talking about a fairy tale. You're still talking about a movie with fairly goofball elements and charmingly old school special effects and all of those things. But there's a seriousness to it as well, right? When I tell my friend or my brother or someone else that like, Gamork is after me today, it sounds like a joke and it probably will get a smile, but it's like, there's a seriousness to that too. Cause we all remember how much that thing scared the hell out of us when we were children. Or again, the, the predominant image, like you said, the, the nothing itself, if you need to describe to somebody what falling into a depressive hole feels like you can use the swamps of sadness or you can use the nothing. And you can probably make someone understand because again, it's very visual. It's very tangible. And it's, eerily on model at least for me I mean, everyone's different but at least for me in terms of how i think about what that experience is like so i'm always looking for those things those ways that you can articulate what is ultimately kind of unnameable about your psyche but you can do it in a way that you can share with others i think movies like this give us that ability in a really straightforward and powerful way and that's that's why i keep coming back to them
0: what you touch on there as well actually is very much what the movie um speaks to at its end when um when the empress is talking to bastion about how stories do not live between the covers of their books that stories are actually shared and that in every story you know somebody will see themselves i believe that's part of why i wanted to do um an episode like this and talk this way even without you know really really ripping ourselves open and airing all of our baggage but you know even if we can talk Mm -hmm. about our baggage some ways that having these conversations are what what gives others a better understanding of of knowing that you know that person who may look like they have got everything together and they're always laughing the loudest and their voice carries the furthest in the room matthew brown i am talking about you um that's right you know uh, that in reality that you know there is probably a lot more going on there um Mm -hmm. that that you may not be privy to but if that person is generous enough to share their story either by writing it down or by telling it to you or by listening to it in a form like this that in sharing these stories these stories go on and these stories gain new life um you know it's 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 told in this movie in a you know, in, a, in a, a story lives on because you can tell a story again and literature and fables never die. But I think that, you know, when you bring this um, to, to us as a metaphor for mental wellness and mental health and depression, um, that in, it's the same idea that talking about it allows it to live on in somebody else and either their understanding of it in other people or perhaps even their understanding of it in themselves.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately that's what the movie's about. And, you know, I have, it's been a long time since I've read the book, but I think that's what the book's about too, is that the reason it's the never ending story is that it's essentially trying to understand why we identify with the characters and the things that we read or watch and why we, what that relationship means, you know, and it, and the, the idea of identifying with the adventure of somebody that you're reading about in the book so closely that you essentially become that character is obviously fundamental to the text and that, that's the premise of why we create anything right like is to create those kinds of connections it's why we tell anyone a story or tell anyone anything about ourselves is to create those kinds of connections and you know the never-ending story itself is is that transmission of empathy that transmission of of selfhood from one person to another to another to another to another i mean ideally it goes on forever
2: thank you very much you're so welcome
3: Rosa Parra, a freelance film critic, and I reside in Los Angeles, California, which is also my hometown.
0: Very nice. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much for joining us here. On the 300th episode, uh, you know, <laughs> a venture that you were kind of in the dark uh, about up until episode 280 or so. So I, I'm really glad that you could uh, join us for the festivities here. You have chosen a really interesting film for us to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, it was actually one of the first ones that came to mind. So I'm, uh, when I first started crafting this podcast together so i'm glad somebody chose it um, and i'm glad that it was you um you chose an animated film from 2015 um by pete doctor uh working with pixar studios you chose inside out the story of a 12 year old girl 11 12 year old girl named riley who moves from midwest america to san francisco and in that move um she falls into something of a depression which is illustrated so well in this film by showing us the emotions in her head, joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger, and how when she moves, um, one of the emotional reactions is that joy and sadness go absent from basically the her core nerve center. Why did you choose this film to talk about today?
3: Yes, um, I think that this movie is it's uh, significantly underrated when it comes to speaking about emotions and the fact that the movie is brilliant enough to personify these emotions and we get to witness, um, what goes quote unquote inside of our head and see how all of that, um, develops and how there are just so many facets of this film that I thoroughly enjoy, uh, as a, um, Obviously, as a science nerd, I love a lot of the brain mechanics um, that that goes in there. But also as a mother, I can also relate uh, having to deal with a teenager who's trying to figure themselves out, figure themselves out emotionally and and how to develop um, and how to deal with with all of that. And I think that, again, there's just so many aspects uh, of the movie that, that sticks out. To me and especially with our current society to me joy the, the the character of joy is the embodiment or the representation of like social media and always having to be uh, happy uh, all these Instagram hmm.
4: um, posts,
3: happy pictures happy and just these celebratory manners and sadly I think in in that sense we're giving this false narrative that that's how we're supposed to be all the time that that's that's our goal be joyful and be happy 24 7 and I think the movie does an excellent job in depicting no that's not exactly the truth and this is why 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 and why
0: <laughs> so this is really interesting to me because we obviously didn't talk about this before we sat yeah. down to start recording today that you chose this less as um less as a reflection of yourself and your outlook on the world and more in what you see in your children yes oh wow yeah okay. absolutely <laughs> but do you also see some of yourself in it too
3: I do, as you know, the movie obviously has one of the most devastating on-screen character deaths with Bing Bong and losing that that innocence and losing that childhood. So they are moments where, uh, yeah, leaving my hometown and, and having um to to relocate elsewhere and having to you're a foreigner in whatever city you go to and having to develop new friends having to find your way around and having family there for you so in that aspect I was also um very much uh, relatable in that sense and that's another factor of the film it doesn't only necessarily speak to children um, I know it's an animated film, and that's what's sadly automatically assumed. Oh, it's animated, therefore it's just for kids. No, I think the film speaks to a variety of ranges of age demographic.
0: It's very underrated in terms of Pixar's canon. When you talk about Pixar films with people, they mm-hmm. automatically go to your, you know, your Toy Stories Toy and your Wallies and your Ups and, and whatnot. But this is a film that I think maybe because it's so bright and cheery and the emotions are like quite clearly cartoons. You know, they're, they're not trying to be a very realistic looking robot or a very realistic looking spaceman. man mm-hmm. um, that the adult viewer will tend to gloss over it, which is unfortunate because when it comes to emotional complexity, this film is actually really, really complicated and intricate yeah. when it comes to, for starters i think one of the things that i'm i'm so happy you chose this movie is the the very very important message that the film conveys that depression and mental illness is not just an absence of joy but it is also an absence of sadness that yes. for so long people have thought just cheer up you know and it's 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 not that it's that th- those two you know, two sides of the same coin, those two seemingly polar opposites, but very, very much connected emotions are missing from our right. core selves. And we cannot make do with what's left with anger, disgust and anxiety mm-hmm. and other more complicated emotions. So I, I do really appreciate this film for putting that message out there for that. It's not just telling kids be happy. It's telling kids that you may feel mixed up. You may feel you may feel like something is wrong inside, mm-hmm. but that in itself is not wrong on the surface.
3: Right. And I think that's perfectly depicted visually right at the end when you do have those core memories, but it's a mixture of yellow and and, and blue. And it, it, of course, as a child, obviously you may not grasp on all these complexities and such, but if you are more of a visual learner, this is definitely gonna hit. Um, and I absolutely love that it, it speaks to that. I think that easily the pandemic has certainly allowed us to stop and, and reflect on, on that and, and pay more attention to our mental health and pay more attention to, oh yes, this makes me happy, this doesn't, and, and it's okay to feel both ways.
0: I, I mean, I mean, one would hope, right. I think that that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of my fear is as time goes on, we are talking more and more and more about mental health in, in Western society. And my fear sometimes is that we're just paying it lip service, that we're talking about the importance of mental health, but we're not either acting on it or recognizing it and, and realizing it for what it is that the same as you would, you know, try to clear the doorway if somebody was walking in and they had a cane or the same as you would, um, you know, like make sure that you face a person if they're hearing impaired so that they can read your lips, mm-hmm. that that we're not always allowing people the space or the, um, the latitude that they need for their own mental health as well, whether it's a day or a month or several years. Sometimes, you know, you it's 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 something where a person can feel that they are not themselves, that these pieces of their personality, as the film puts so, so very well, that Riley is made up of these core elements of being a goofball, of loving her family, of always being honest and how those are tethered to memories. But when you're struggling with mental health for whatever reason it is, whether it's chemical, whether it's incidental, you know, you talked on our uh, wakanda forever episode about grief and mm-hmm. grief can manifest itself in in the absence of some of these emotions um that you are you are not yourself and it's not a matter of cheering up and it's not a matter of oh she's sad it's these you know like you said the science of it the connections the neurological connections are just not firing for a given time and we yeah. need to be better about recognizing these things
3: Yes. Uh, oh, I completely concur uh, with everything you just said. And I, I also believe that just like I previously mentioned it, the movie will talk to a variety of age demographic. I mean, as a teenager, you may see yourself in this movie. You may kind of have an idea. Okay. This is probably, um it's okay to feel sad at times and uh, to, to feel angry at times too. But it, it, that's the complexity of being a human being, and as a mother myself, as a, as a parent, you can also take note to in um, the reality that you do you are raising a child who. Through majority of our childhood, we are introduced to the world, um, the perspective of the world through a, a black and white lens. Mm-hmm. And once you transition into teenage uh, teenage years, that's when you realize, okay, this is a variety of different shades of gray, and again, as a parent, it's going to speak to you as a, as a teenager it might speak to you. And even as a child, yeah, it's visually um, appealing and such, but you might recognize a few things here and there. And yeah, the, 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 the reality that we we can experience joy without a little bit of sadness. We, we, it's okay to be uh, sad at, at moments because it's those moments also that um, uh, that create memories or um, uh, they solidify the bonds with other family members and such. And it's beautifully depicted here.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think one of the other reasons I was actually really happy, you um, brought it back to my attention. It's a film I yeah. love, um, but yeah. it's a film I haven't seen in several years. Um, but one of the things I had forgotten is the way the film uh, illustrates that core memories these memories that shape our personality how they can begin through one lens they can begin as happy memories or they can yeah. begin as sad memories and over time they can change um or even just you know within the way that we want to look at them and i don't think we pay enough attention to that that something somebody went through at the time you know like we may look back on you know, some family vacation that we took with our children and our children were laughing and happy and, and just enjoying themselves. And we may think to ourselves, that was a happy time for them, Mm -hmm. but we don't realize that over time they are going to see it differently, whether or not something bad happened to them, then whether or not the, they lost something in that experience, you know, like they could look back on it and say, that was the last time we were all together, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think, that in this movie is one of the things that really, really drives it is that these core pieces of ourselves, whether they begin sad or they begin angry or they begin happy or or any of the other emotions, they can change over time and become something else and still be a part of us, but part of us in a new way.
3: Absolutely. And I, I think that that's also another aspect that I thoroughly appreciate about the movie. The importance of perspective and perhaps it's introduced here as uh, an aspect of comedic relief like when we see the um, what the mom is thinking and what the dad (sighs) is thinking (laughs) in these aspects but it is a matter of perspective because you you do have a scene where she um, with Riley is in her room and internally she's feeling all these like um, a, a variety of emotions but then the mom tells her, but you've been such a good uh, girl. You've been joyful throughout all of this. And I think that speaks to the importance of talking about how you feel, the importance of uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And I think that because sadness is very much connected to feeling vulnerable oftentimes we are scared to show that side of, of ourselves and i the, obviously towards the third act and you have the uh, um i mean spoilers alert i guess uh, it's, a, a movie that it's, is-
0: a, it's almost a 10 year old movie <laughs> yeah now. i think okay. we can spoil it
3: <laughs> so when uh, riley is thinking of leaving and then she just comes back and she just cries and she just breaks down and she says i just want to go home and just allowing yourself to feel that and acknowledging and just releasing all of that makes a huge impact um, to not only yourself uh, on an internal and physiological level, but also to the people around you. And when people know what's going on with you, when people have that awareness, they can try to help or be at least a, a, a form of support system that can definitely um, uplift you and, and, or can provide help or seek some form of guidance for you.
0: Do you think it's, it's interesting when you talk about children, um, being okay with feeling sad, because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you, you off the top of the conversation, you talked about, um, the way that we are portraying our lives on social media and how everything inside the frame is fantastic and living my best life. Meanwhile, just outside of the frame, it's chaos. Um, I think about, um, I think about boys. Like this film is about a girl, but I think about boys because Uh. boys growing up have always been told, don't show your emotion, especially don't show sadness. Um, I, when I was growing up, I was always told you're so sensitive. Um, Mm -hmm. like where, do you think this film is trying to encourage children and, and like boys and girls and, and, you know, children that are not binary, um, to to understand that it's okay like you know whether or not it's just for an afternoon or for a a while it's okay not to feel happy it's okay to let these emotions in and process them
3: Mm -hmm. i hope so um because you i actually had not thought about that because obviously i have all girls um but I, i do think that I hope that boys, if they do see this film, they do um, receive the same message of it's okay uh, to be I know culturally it might be difficult It may be challenging. I mean, for me um i'm I'm a Latina and uh, a lot of Latinos, there's this macho uh, yeah, yeah. stereotype that yeah, you're not allowed to be sensitive. you're not allowed to be vulnerable otherwise yeah, it's like if somebody gonna...
0: dies, you're okay, that's okay. like yeah. at a funeral, you can cry, but after that right.
3: no. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to that, I would say I hope they do uh, receive the same message and, and they they understand that it's OK, because if we're looking statistically um, a, a lot and unfortunately, uh, I mean, I, I think this is um, popularly known, but a lot of I don't, I don't want to say this, but, but the people who do commit suicides, majority of them are men mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people a lot I, I believe majority of people who do have some form of mental illness tend to be men a lot of people who um, do suffer this but because of the social stigma that yeah no you're not allowed uh, to go seek help otherwise you, you're going to be looked down upon it, it's so unfortunate and I, I, I really do hope that yeah. something like this movie can send a different message out there
0: yeah, because I think you know what's what's interesting is this movie put this movie frames it just in terms of emotion. This movie frames it just in terms of processing happiness and sadness and anger and disgust. But you know when you get past that, when you get into um, feelings of really deep depression it goes beyond emotion and it gets into something chemical or something deeply psychological that needs to be worked out and that's where I do believe that a lot of men I mean historically have had trouble um recognizing and and seeking help and probably and often still do um you know mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing is it's that that's kind of the that's kind of the fairy tale wrapping of this movie is that this movie happily is able to contain it just to emotion right wow. that it that it doesn't really stem over into anything chemical and 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 or anything genetic you know like your your parents may have had mental illness run in their family and you didn't know because they didn't know how to explain it because we're only over the last several years really gaining the language to explain all of these things um you know so that i think that's the thing that you you touch upon is while this movie is aimed for children and let's be honest, you know, girls are more, more likely to watch this movie than boys are. Yeah. Um, I would hope that boys watch this movie too. And I would hope that boys have this conversation and that about understanding their emotions. Like that's one of the things I've always um, been interested in over the last several years, as I've learned more and more about um, teenagers and why we are where we are with teenagers in society is we take such a long time talking to our girls about what to be and what not to be but we barely talk to our boys about mm-hmm. how to understand emotions and going not even getting into cultural differences
3: right i, I would hope people would um walk away with uh knowing that it's we are a a, a mixture uh, of emotions it's okay to feel um, joyful and sad and angry and disgusted <laughs> and fearful at times and that it's perfectly fine uh, to feel that way don't don't allow um, social media particularly to fool you into thinking that your life supposed to be parallel or it's supposed to reflect whatever else you're seeing um in in the movie and now that you mentioned um about the the talking about boys I mean now I'm just sitting here and thinking about it and Um, Although I do believe the movie does an excellent job in depicting the importance of um, acknowledging and feeling and to some extent embracing all of these emotions, I think it may also sadly um, cement a a form of stereotype when it comes to emotions, because you do have sadness, joy, and disgust kind of they do look more of a feminine side of things where (laughs) then you have anger and fear kind of on the masculine side. So now, now I'm, I'm kind of realizing that now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe we can do a little um, work. There's still work to be done here. But, I mean, because uh-huh. they're
0: because they're all such uh, animated cart- like characters, because yeah. they're not like really designed to look very very human. Right. Um, part of me wants to think that they're all non-binary and that they're just showing <laughs> that side of themselves. Um, yeah. You know, like they're all the like they're all bright colors. They're all the, they're all various shapes and sizes. Yes, that Like that yes. as well. And I think the one thing that I've always taken away from this film that I always love the most, like one of those little itty bitty touches, is all of the characters, all, all of the emotions are one uniform color, yes. except for Joy, who has her blue hair, which mm-hmm. is sadness's color.
3: Yes. I've always
0: loved that. I've always loved that to to fully understand and appreciate joy you also have to have a bit of sadness otherwise right. it's not gonna it's not gonna compute
3: yeah i completely agree thank you so much <laughs> no worries thank you for for inviting me this was fun dirty old river
2: must keep
5: My name is uh, Jim Lazkowski, and I reside in the city of Chicago, Illinois, here in the States. And uh, most notably, I guess, I'm the host of the Directors Club podcast, which has been running for many years now.
0: Jim, I am so very happy you could join me uh, for this 300th episode extravaganza you pointed me towards a film from 2011 that was um, a television production for hbo uh directed by tommy lee jones starring tommy lee jones alongside samuel l jackson and it is an adaptation of a cormac mccarthy play so i was actually really interested to dig into it you pointed me towards the sunset limited which is about two men having a conversation um specifically about suicide and about life and about death and what it all means. And uh, aside from the fact that this movie got me pretty hard towards its end, um, I I am finding myself very, very curious. uh, Why did we watch The Sunset Limited?
5: Wouldn't it be interesting to choose a movie where two men are talking about mental health? for us to talk about.
2: <laughs>
5: okay. Okay. Sunset Limited I haven't really talked about on a podcast. I don't even know if I've talked about it on my podcast to be honest. And it's something that upon first viewing I struggled with, especially with how things play out at the end. And yet at the same time, I just think Cormac McCarthy is one of our all-time great writers. You
3: this just is true. have to
5: you have to be willing to um Except a little bit of a pessimistic worldview. People have called him nihilistic. I don't know if I would go that far because I still think he's interested in the human experience and doesn't think we're all going to hell. Uh, (laughs) But at the same time, I do think Tommy Lee Jones is a stand-in for McCarthy's philosophy and maybe even his own feelings about life, mental health suicidality, all those things that I feel we don't, we're nervous to talk about. And in fact, I'm always nervous to talk about suicidal ideation. Uh, It's something that we, we use the word stigma a lot when it comes to mental health and, you know, whether you're advocating for it or, you know, there's just this feeling in general that people who struggle with it um, are, quote unquote crazy, you know, (laughs) or they're acting out in ways that uh, aren't pleasant. And why would we want to expose ourselves to that energy? I feel very differently. I want to have these conversations. I want people to openly talk about intrusive thoughts. And a lot of those, a lot of times those intrusive thoughts can even be thoughts of death. Not necessarily like I'm walking around with suicidal thoughts, but there have been moments in my life where the depression gets so severe that you do think, wouldn't it be nice if the pain could just go away?
2: Yeah, yeah.
5: And I don't necessarily think that suicide is the answer, of course. But there are some people who view it in a very different way, where they see it as an end to suffering. And you can certainly talk about, you know, the 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 idea of that, Doctor Kavorkian. Mm what he was doing for certain people. Mm -hmm. Obviously that has more to do with physical health and, you know, something like cancer or if you're in severe pain to where you don't want to live anymore. Right. But I just think this movie really speaks to the nature of existence and how we have these contrasting perspectives. uh, And sometimes that can reside in the same person like me. Like I can be both Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones you
0: know which is is interesting because the poster of this movie which i'll include in the show notes if people have never seen it which i imagine a lot of people haven't is a stark black and white image with the two men um on opposite sides of the um the shade spectrum I think one of the things that struck me about this movie and I shouldn't be surprised because I've, I've read the play before so I knew I didn't know what I was getting into but what what I was reminded of coming back to it several years after I read it was how much it really crams into a very short um, run time mm-hmm. um, and I thought one of the th- one of the first things that was interesting to me was this, tone that's kind of tap danced around it's never really explicitly um explored but it's very much there is this idea of responsibility and um almost survivor's remorse by the people who are around someone who is suicidal um you know somebody feeling responsible for that person's life somebody feeling as though if they didn't see signs that maybe they should have um the the character played by uh samuel l jackson um they just they go by black and white in this in this movie you can tell that he is the kind of person who believes that he is responsible that believes that it is his duty to not just save this person's life because he did he stopped him from jumping in front of a subway but that he is responsible for trying to help him for trying to listen to try to guide him back to believing that life is worth living he feels that weight and alongside tommy lee jones frighteningly pragmatic (laughs) <laughs> approach to wanting to be done with life one of the saddest things is watching try and try and try to take upon that responsibility because it be- he believes he is atoning for some of his uh previous transgressions in life he's an ex-con and that he is um preaching the good word he is a christian yeah. he believes that you know this is the kind of thing that he was put on this earth to do and along with Tommy Lee Jones' very um, serious struggles with mental health um, to the point that he wants to end his own life, Samuel L. Jackson's struggles are very first, front, and foremost here because you can see that this is the kind of thing that he is not going to take lightly, this you know, meeting with this person and this responsibility that he feels to this stranger's life.
5: One thing that I have conversations about in... In in general, is what's posed at the end of this movie? Uh, can you truly save somebody when they are that determined, or they are that suicidal? And I almost feel like watching this is is being privy to like a therapist client <laughs> kind of dynamic, right? Like mm-hmm. Samuel Jackson wants to convince Tommy Lee Jones that there is hope that there is reasons to live. And if you just read this Bible, or if you just listen to what I'm saying, you can find the light, but Tommy Lee Jones just only sees darkness. And is it our responsibility? You know, is it, is it, is it an exercise in futility is what really the ending is kind of trying to convey. And you can, The optimist can maybe even think of it as, well, maybe, you know, he gets help and Mm -hmm. Samuel Jackson is able to, you know, has changed him, but I don't think so. I think this is a case, especially when you know (laughs) Cormac McCarthy as a writer, this doesn't end happy. It's the believer is unable to stop the professor from leaving and, you know, the professor is telling everyone or telling Samuel Jackson that to end life is the only hope he has left. That That is the way to end his suffering. And that actually is what he wants to do. In the end, the believer is almost shook to the core that somebody can feel that way, can actually be that um,
0: depressed. What's interesting about that is when a person becomes suicidal um you know there's there's a lot of reasons for it both pragmatic um you know non-pragmatic sometimes where it's it's chemical um Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot there and the thing is is that uh, listening to tommy lee jones um argue his position so uh thoroughly you know so intelligently uh, he's he not a a an erratic person babbling nonsense he is making just a, a terrifying amount of a great point that you just you you have to you know either accept that he believes it maybe steal yourself off that you don't want to believe it what have you but it's emblematic of where a suicidal person finds themselves is that it's it's not that they are necessarily driving themselves off the cliff as the suicidal tendency has tied them up put them in the trunk and has taken the wheel you know and that's that's the thing that you know if you are the believer that uh, you know the samuel L. jackson character that you have to hold on to is it was never a matter of talking them out of it of stopping it maybe you'd be able to postpone it you don't know and it's it's so hard you know it's it's hard obviously on the suicidal person it's hard on everybody who's left because they think to themselves if only i'd said the right thing you know and 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 he has this crisis of faith at the end of this movie wondering why god put him into that position if he wouldn't give him the words to succeed but that was just never the point you know sometimes the point is to bear to bear witness um you know and and that's that's as as hard as it is to watch a person uh dealing with thoughts of suicide it's also difficult to watch a person who feels like they should have been able to step in the way and stop them
5: that's something that you know we all have to kind of wrestle with in terms of somebody even suffering from addiction or even depression, if they're not able to function. And there are, you know, a lot of people that I've run into within the library system that are homeless and and certainly suffer from, from mental illness. And you, you basically have to step back and listen to them or separate yourself from judgment entirely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually just try to you don't necessarily have to give them all the references to say hey you could go here you can go there you can find a social worker you can do this sometimes they just need somebody to listen and that's that helps get, through, get them through the day and in the end you kind of want that to happen for Tommy Lee Jones in this movie it's like somebody's listening to you and somebody's also at times didactically <laughs> trying to preach to you uh, with good intentions, of course, it's not a matter of like, if you, if I just convert you, if you just find the Lord, then all will be saved. I think that, you know, in terms of my own struggles, you know, cause I suffer from depression and anxiety, I, in the past, I've mainly tried to focus so intently on optimism that things will get better as opposed to things will get worse because that is what the depression kind of makes you think or things won't get better. I should say. And now as, you know, I'm turning you know, heading towards my mid forties, I, I am a little kind of agnostic about those viewpoints. I, I see myself as a blend of these two men and not necessarily like thinking things will get better or thinking things will get worse. They just might be things, hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it may, yeah, I guess in my head, I do worry that things can get worse, especially with how things have been in general in the world in the past couple of years, but I don't necessarily get to that place of hopelessness the way Tommy Lee Jones does. And I also don't, my my other thinking was for the longest time, I felt like I had more of a connection to Samuel L. Jackson, where it as opposed to his belief in the Bible and religion, I always used to tell people, if you find the right movie or you find the right record or you read, you know, a great novel that could save you. Life is Mm -hmm. automatically better from that point on, but that's not necessarily true. No, (laughs) you know? So that's kind of where I've come down on is saying like, yeah, I, I see the value obviously in finding the right movies (laughs) and, you know, the fact that art can save me in many ways, and it has, but it's not, you still need support. You still need a lot of other things besides just one answer to get you through the day.
0: Something else that you're reminding me of um, that I went through recently um, in terms of not being the listener not being the person who was there at the right moment of of having that kind of those feelings of remorse and survivors guilt and wondering like what else could i have done you know did i say the right things was i there at the right moment did i did i help this person was i actually uh came across something <laughs> um please try not to laugh at me too hard people i found something in a comic book um but it's a comic book written by um academy award winner um john ridley it's called the other history of the dc universe and it's a it's a thought from um a hero named black lightning upon his first encounter with um superman and he actually says of superman what made him human was a desperate need to be liked and admired that patriotic suit that big s on his chest weren't rooted in his superiority They were manifestations of his guilt and self-doubt and the need for outside validation. Hmm. I didn't blame him for his fragility. He was the last of his tribe. He had lived with his whole race had died. That kind of survivor's remorse has got to mess with your head. I know that there's times where that is very much what I'm trying to do. I know that there's times where I'm trying to be somebody else's hero for one day or one hour or even just one minute because it's helping me process my own stuff.
2: Sure.
0: Um, and, you know, that is, that's something that we all have to kind of reckon ourselves with, you know, that sometimes that is what's going to put us into a harder place because we're going to be harder on ourselves thinking that we weren't the hero. We didn't do what we needed to do. But the thing is, is that, we may not have been prepared to do it. We may have had absolutely no business being in that place at that moment without the right tools. And that's the thing, is the believer in this movie, Samuel L. Jackson, really, he's a complete stranger. He has no tools to talk to this complete random person who wants to end his life and try to make him believe that life is is there. But that is probably has just as much to do with him and what he's carrying as much as it does the professor and what he wants to end and it's such a difficult place for one to reckon themselves with is the, the the hope to be a help i mean including this podcast to be a help to be a hero to be a listener to be that person whether or not that is who you are supposed to be i think is something that is something i i don't think i ever really thought about much before recently
5: I I guess I've always framed the movie more as like, well, philosophy, psychology, mental health, and didn't always view it through the uh, like survivor's guilt lens until later on. Cause the movie I feel like has an ending that suggests in this very sad way. I mean, I guess I'm viewing it as sad, of course, but some people can't be saved and maybe we have to come to terms with that. And not think of death as this awful, awful thing. I mean, the mild, it's, it's a good thing.
0: The mild irony too, is that it's, it's actually an ambiguous ending. You know, we don't know what happens. He walks out the door and you know that like, I mean, we all have a hunch, but we don't know, you know, there, there, there's the old there's the old uh, saying that after every story that you've ever read, 15 minutes after the last event, the whole world ends. So I mean, that, that could have been it for both. But we don't know. We have this feeling, we are left with this impression that the professor has gone to finish what he set out to do, but we don't really know. And I mean, that that's the thing too, is that it's interesting to me that we go through this evening with these two men listening to them talk about their feelings their philosophies their entire life outlook and where we come away from it like i believe if you asked 99 people out of 100 they would come back with the answer that we both have that yeah. the the professor went to end his life and the believer is now distraught but we don't know and that's that that's that's the crazy thing is is that we all just kind of come down on that um what you know i guess what's interesting to me is with every other you know you mentioned that the other movies that you talked about how you um you know you've talked about them a lot um so you know there's all kinds of other films about mental health about suicide um what ultimately brought you to this one um, you know, like like, what is the message, or what is what is the kernel of this that you would want to leave people with, um, if they happen to watch the Sunset Limited, or if they happen to have latched onto something that we've said over these last uh, several minutes?
5: It's difficult to sum up. I think it's because it's it's not something I can recommend to everybody because I do feel that somebody maybe that is a little fragile can walk away with this thinking similarly to how Tommy Lee Jones feels that maybe life has no meaning and we're just marching towards this inevitable end. And we sort of have to embrace that to some degree, because, you know, again, Cormac McCarthy's feelings and worldview and and writing sorts would indicate to me that yes, Tommy Lee Jones goes and completes what he wanted to, or finishes what he, you know, started and, and it's tragic and, were left there to think, um, much like Samuel Jackson does. Like what could what could have been done? I mean, he he certainly did a lot in that whole stretch of time. Uh, but I also like that here Cormac McCarthy he doesn't have a, necessarily an ideological agenda. He's really just interested in capturing like the internal debate of s- thoughtful people that are emotionally intelligent, I think, and do are very introspective. So I hope this movie will make you feel comfortable having conversations like these with other people. Cause some people are just like much like how they want entertainment to be distracting. And so they don't have to think about the dark thoughts that they have. And that makes complete sense too. But I think we should be willing to reach out and talk to people and say, I'm, I have dark intrusive thoughts and here, here's what they are. Uh, And be comfortable with that process and, you know, finding the right person to do that is sometimes challenging, you know, even looking for the right therapist, you got to find the right match or somebody that you feel good saying these things to. It's like dating. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I don't know. I just, I I hope that people can have conversations like these and not think that, oh man, uh, I don't want to bring people down. Uh, this is too heavy to share with other people. So I'm just going to internalize it as much yeah. as I possibly can. Yeah. Cause I think some people do feel that way. And I, in the end, this movie makes me feel comfortable with my own thoughts and <laughs> being able to openly talk about them like I have on this podcast with you today. So <laughs> that's what that, I love about a movie like this. So. That's, I mean, that
0: that's my hope is at, you know, looking at this movie as, Capital B bleak as it can be sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. What what gives me a sense of hope was that a complete stranger reached out to another complete stranger and said, do me a favor, let's go talk about this for an hour. You know, like that. that's, that's the thing is, listen, yeah, there are going to be people out there who are not going to have the tools. There are going to be people out there who are not going to have the right answers, but People can surprise you that, you know, you can find that one good listener um, who is able to take on a little bit of that burden, whether it's depression, whether it's grief, whether it's, um, you know, um, anything that that they can you can share just a piece of it for a minute um regardless of how well you know them like that's that's the thing that that I think is really um interesting is therapy of course is somebody who you, you don't know that well you get to you open yourselves up and you you get to know them over the course of weeks months years uh sometimes several times um but they are there there are boundaries there so that you can have that openness and tell them things that you wouldn't necessarily tell people who you love. So I guess that's the hope is that there is that this person, even for one hour found somebody who would listen, regardless of whether or not that changed him again, unfortunately we're both on the side that we don't think it changed him. Um, But that somebody out there was willing to take on that burden, even for a little while um, and, and listen. And, And I think that's what I hope to to get the most um, out of these conversations that I'm having on this episode. It's a chance to listen um, and a hope that, that people do listen.
5: Well, I'm grateful for you in general um, for doing what you do on the podcast, but also be willing to, you know, have me on and have these kind of conversations because, you know, it's, it can be bleak, like you said, and we have those types of thoughts that, we really wish weren't there but I think learning to accept them as a part of who we are and also learning to to say I'm not defined by these thoughts Mm -hmm. either these are just thoughts thanks James yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me
4: I'm Samantha Joyce, and I live in Toronto, um, and I'm an author, uh, published two books, and I also am an avid movie watcher.
0: And I am happy as heck that you decided to do this because we haven't actually met before this. We just seem to, like, we have a friend in common and we tweet at each other
4: occasionally. Yeah, we actually Uh, have two friends in common. Who else do we know? Lisa.
0: Yes, of course. Oh, she's going to kill me. Um, we do. We have we have two friends in common and yeah, we we've never actually sat down and met or like been in the, the same space that we know of. And yet when time came to do this show you were actually one of the first people i reached out to so i am really really pleased that you agreed to to do this that you you thought that this was worthy of your time and didn't think we just some weirdo uh (laughs) you know crossing boundaries (laughs) or anything you have brought an interesting film to the table to talk about mental health before we get into anything else i need to ask you In the fragile state that I find myself at the beginning of 2023, why did you want to make me cry?
4: (laughs) You know, um, I didn't do it on purpose. In fact, I made myself rewatch My Girl and I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Um, But when you asked me the question, um, you know, about a movie that I felt said a lot to me about mental health and um, my own journey, honestly, the first movie that I ever saw that spoke to me in that way was my girl. Okay. And I kept trying to think of other films. Cause I thought, well, what a weird choice is that everybody remembers about the little boy who dies. Um, but nobody really thinks of it as a mental health film. Um, and, but I kept coming back to it. And so I, I'm sorry, but make, I, you know what? <laughs> I, I even like when it got to the end, I'm like, I, I can't watch this. And I, Looked at my phone instead. <laughs> it's so hard to watch that part, but that's not the part I'm talking about. So gotcha.
0: So we have spoiled the lead here. We are going to talk about a film from 1991 directed by Howard Zeff. It is My Girl, starring uh, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, a very very young Macaulay Culkin, and a very very young Anna Klumsky. and it's about two kids in the summer of 1972 uh, growing up together in this small town. Her widowed father is a undertaker um and she has a very peculiar relationship with death and you know we've we're talking about a 30 year old movie now so we can get straight to the point the ultimate payoff of the movie is this tender friendship between this boy and this girl ends when the boy tragically dies um in a in a very strange incident in the woods um so you you mentioned that this was one of the first films you'd thought of when I when mm-hmm. I reached out to you about this. Why does this film um, touch on ideas for you of, of mental health in any way, shape, or form?
4: Yeah, so I'm giving away my age because you just said the film is 30 years old. Um, two,
0: actually. Oh, but gosh, he, thanks. But, but thanks he's for
4: the reminder. <laughs> um, I was very close to the main character, Veda's age, when I saw it for the first time. And um, Veda is not your typical child in movies. She actually uh, suffers from a few mental health conditions. She has a lot of anxiety. She's a hypochondriac, which now we call uh, health anxiety. Um, She has some PTSD um, from dealing with her mother's death. And also she lives in a funeral home, which, which causes that. Veda was the first kid my age or around that i saw on film that i related to Hmm. um i you don't see a lot of movies where especially back in the 90s that touch on children having mental illness um but it's not even about her having mental illness it's just that's part of her character and um the first time i saw it i saw myself i suffer from health anxiety um i suffer from anxiety, Um, I and I suffer from PTSD, and I've had that my entire life, Um, and I really related to her. It touches on grief as well, which is something I grew up with too, Um, and it touches on absentee parents, parents who are there but not quite there, Um, which was, you know, my own parents were going through a divorce, um, and they had their own things going on, and I was a lot like Veda. Um, very much a introvert, didn't have a lot of friends, you know, had that one good friend, was more friends with adults than I was with children. I just, her, her journey just always stuck with me because I still think of her as the first person I ever saw on screen where I went, oh, that's me. And I just think it's really interesting because you don't really see that a lot with kids in films. They're, they're no. not given the, the opportunity to show mental health in, in a very real way. And I do feel that she shows it in a very real way.
0: The, um, the health anxiety is an interesting thing about it because it's, I mean, it's not played for laughs. It's not no. something that's really, um, you know, look at how zany Veda is mm-hmm. in, in the fact that she thinks she's got a chicken bone stuck in her throat. Um, it's, it, it It's an interesting thing uh, to see because she keeps just plowing into the doctor's office. Um, The nurse obviously knows her and she'll, you know, she'll call up the doctor. She's like, Veda's here, you know, do you have time for her? And the one thing I found really interesting is that in this small town that's probably, you know, not exactly cosmopolitan or anything like that. They always just make time for her, you know, Mm -hmm. they they don't ever um put her off they don't ever put her in her in, like put her in her place about this of veda why are you wasting my time veda you really got to get over this they always just allow her the space allow her the moment like let her um have that comfort have that moment i think that that's something that's that's really lovely because i i, I certainly don't think that, that that's something you'd see in a big city and i don't think that that's something you'd see in a modern context
4: No. And I think that that was something that I didn't see in my own parents. Mm. And, um, I think that that's why I probably gravitated towards those moments in the film. Um, because I, I was often told, well, you're being dramatic or, you know, stop being dramatic. Um, and, um, I mean, I do theater now, so I'm used to being dramatic, (laughs) but it was a different kind of dramatic. Um, and seeing her get validated, um, it helped, I think it just comforted me. It made me think like, okay, there's other people like me who think like this and you know, it's okay. It's you know, it's something that other people have struggled with. She has her reasons, I have my reasons. Um, but I don't need to be ashamed of this because I'm not the only one. And I think that that really made an impression on me. I Everybody sees the movie as an out as an absolute downer and I saw it as hopeful. Hmm. which is really strange. I think it ends on, you know, sorry for giving away the ending, but I actually think it ends on a hopeful note. It made me want to end up in the same place that Veda ends up in, which is kind of at peace with who she is. She learns, you know, how to get over her crush on her teacher, how to, you know, how she makes a new friend. Um, all these all these things and you know they don't talk as much about her health anxiety towards the end and in a way i found it a little bit hopeful for me that maybe there was a chance that i could learn to live with this too
0: you mentioned validation that's actually that's not something that's come up so far i don't know um in, in terms of uh, what where i'm <laughs> it's it's strange recording these cuz i don't know the order <laughs> that they're going to all be uh played when i ultimately put the show together but um where I am in, in creating this show, nobody has talked about validation. Um, we've talked about seeing, like 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 the having the language. I think is one mm-hmm. of the things that's come up a lot. Um, being heard, for sure, uh, the factor of empathy, but validation is something different because um, I, I you know I think that's that's something that anybody who has any kind of mental health concern really wants is is you know that idea (laughs) to to just to be heard to have the space but to hear it's okay you know like like not 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 don't worry about it not we'll fix it not this this just yeah i see it i hear it just let's just be in in this in this moment in this place that you find yourself whatever it is
4: yeah the first time i was even given a, a diagnosis which wasn't until my late teens early 20s um it, everything made sense. Getting that validation of, yeah, it's, you know, you're feeling these things because your brain's wired a little bit differently than other people's, not because you're a bad person, not because, you know, you've done anything wrong. It's, you know, it's just your brain doesn't operate in the same operating system as as other people. And that's okay. And mm-hmm. we'll find ways around, you know, the little bits that go off when they shouldn't and um and yeah and i think that's why when you know my girl came into my head because it was i think the first movie that i did feel validated in when i when i saw it i i thought you know there really is an isolating feeling when you suffer from mental illness you you, your mental illness likes to tell you that you're alone it likes to tell you that you're you know that you're the the strange one that nobody else is going to understand that, um, everybody's going to laugh at you. Um, and sometimes just having the ability to see, uh, your, you know, see yourself on screen and, and see somebody who's struggling with the same things that you struggle with. Um, and again, like you mentioned, having the doctor say, come on in and, you know, having even her best friend, you know, he says that he, he understands why she does it. Mm -hmm. Um, That just meant a lot to me um, because, you know, you you really do. You feel like you're off in your own planet sometimes because nobody else seems to think the way you do. So what's wrong with you, especially at that age? It really stuck with me.
0: I think what's lovely about that, too, in the context of this story is uh, it gives Veda um, an awareness of other people. So like you Mm -hmm. see that uh, you don't really see how she and Thomas J are friends, um, but you can get an idea that they're they're both like the runt of their litters where it comes to their friends. And Thomas J, at one point, like we learned that he's allergic to everything. When the character played by uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis, when um, Shelley says, really, even chocolate, and they both just repeat in unison everything <laughs> yeah. you know, it's you get the idea that she she sees if not you know health anxiety in or not, if not health disorder in Thomas J but actual physical um fragility in Thomas J and in you know she can be his person before we called that person, you know, my person. Yeah. Um, It's, it's that kind of thing. It's there in the subtext, which is a beautiful thing.
4: He's, I feel like he's the one person she can be herself with. Mm. And um, because she knows that he knows what it feels like to, to not be, you know, this perfect picture of health. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, she does try to get her dad to understand, but he doesn't even see her. And Shelly is probably the first one, to try to understand other than Thomas J. I I was like that with my friendships too. I mean, I didn't have a lot of friends. I had like that one good friend and I still do, (laughs) you know, I've got like those, those few very close friends. Um, But I think it was because I gravitated towards people who understand, who understood that even if they didn't have the same issues I did, they had their own things going on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we all kind of felt like outsiders anyway. So Mm -hmm. we kind of, became insiders together in our own little group of outsiders
0: <laughs> you know that or at least I, I hope you could guess that i wasn't going to get you on this show and talk about grief because yep. that seems to be the, it, it
4: is part of the movie
0: <laughs> it is and it seems to curiously have been the campfire that our friendship our curious little yeah. friendship has gathered yep. around yep um this movie says a lot about it very very economically um it it has you know because it all takes place in um in a funeral home um it it very much has its grief on its mind um veda her mother died in childbirth um and her father has closed himself off um you know for 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 her for her entire 11 year old 11 year existence he hasn't really put himself back out there you can sort of feel like he hasn't entirely processed uh when you listen to him talking to Shelley, and when you see how he is trying to raise veda um veda then of course has to take all of this and very quickly translate it into her grief for for thomas J when she loses him mm-hmm. at the end of this um I don't know. Maybe I'm just optimistic. Um, <laughs> I feel like she has the tools, but I feel like this film really wants um, people who are grieving to understand that it's one, two things: one that it's a process,
6: mm-hmm.
0: and two that no matter how young or how old you are, it's it's always going to hit. Like it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like, well, you're old enough. So you have the language or you're too young. So you don't understand. It's like, no, no, no. It's just going to take you and it's going to hold on to you for as long as it wants to hold on to you. And that may be forever. And like you were saying that too is okay.
4: So, I, I mean, I, I grew up kind of in a weird way, always sort of fascinated with death. Not, not in a, not in a dark way. Oh, exactly kind of terrified of it to be honest
2: okay now Um, you're on your own sorry
4: absolutely like more (laughs) like i mean more like exploring what what does it what happens at the after it i mean even a lot of my books that i you know write deal with grief or death um and what's in what i find interesting about the the movie is there's actually layers of death and grief because like you said you've got her mother who died years ago which also gives beta a lot of guilt because she died in childbirth um you've got the father who's dealing with that and you've got the grandmother who um is got dementia and is alive but isn't there anymore so you've and then you've got the actual dead people in the Mm -hmm in the funeral home. So there there really is death surrounding Veda in in every way shape or form cuz even her grandmother has died in a way. She's alive but she's not. I always gravitated towards movies where people died. I don't know why. I think I enjoyed crying. I think that I felt a release. It like when you watch a sad movie and you just let yourself cry over it, it kind of released you. And I still do that when I'm, especially with grieving. And I think that grief is such a personal thing. And I think that the one thing that I've learned over the years, like you and I have talked, I lost my mother a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, that was my mom and I had a very complicated relationship in a lot of ways, but also a very good one, a very close one, but also complicated. My grief is complicated because of that. And, um, I think that we as a society love to brush grief off. Uh, mm. We get uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, somebody dies, and the first thing we want to do is be like, oh, I'm so sorry, and run away. We want to put a time limit on it. Okay, that person has, you know, that their parent died, you know, six months ago. They should be okay by now. I, yeah. you know, and there is no time limit for grief, and grief doesn't, it's not linear. Mm-hmm. You can be fine one day, and then the next day you see something, and it's like a tidal wave hits you, and you can't breathe, yeah, I think probably one of the reasons i I watch movies like that is because I think it's important to sit in that uncomfortability. I think it's important to understand that all of us grieve, we all lose people, we all lose pets we <laughs> you know we lose we lose and we grieve things that aren't even death in death you yeah. can grieve the loss of a job you can grieve the loss of a you know a marriage you can grieve friends, I, friends I, anything I, yeah. I've
0: said so many times on this show that nobody gives you the language for losing a friend it's the one thing they don't teach you and I and I don't mean like like a friend dying I mean just no not yeah being friends anymore like you know it's like it's one of those things they just don't teach you about as to how to deal with somebody not being your friend anymore for either you know a reason or even worse for no reason yeah um it's it's so it's its own um facet of mental health because it's the kind of thing that like you say everybody goes through in one shape or form or another. Um some really, really difficult, some that are a little bit gentler and you just you manage. But like you say, the tricky thing is the way that it comes and goes and some days are harder and some days are not. And it it I I feel the one thing I think I feel that grief is a bit of a blessing is it gives everybody a window into mental health it's like
3: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: you know what this is difficult and there are people where this is their entire bloody life is this kind of difficulty that you're feeling in this moment
4: yes yeah and and i mean you know grief grief i mean especially for me grief can actually make the the mental health issues that you deal with even worse yeah um it amplifies issues that you already had it might bring up issues from your past that you had sort of thought you were over, but you're not. And You really don't know what it's going to trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we, I think it's important that we learn as a society to to sort of find comfort in grief. Um, because it's natural, I think it's important. And so I knew my mother was going to pass. She used assisted um, assisted dying. Uh, she had terminal cancer. Um, I knew two weeks before she passed away, her, her, uh, her day of death, which is very weird to know that, to, to know two weeks ahead of time when someone is going to pass. And, and I actually thought I would be fine because I had two weeks to grieve her while she was still here. And I had, you know, she had cancer for five years. She was told she was gonna live for one, she had it for five and I was, you know, oh, I had five years to, to you know, grieve the, the terminal cancer diagnosis. I had two weeks to grieve the fact that I knew she was, the day she was gonna pass away. And um, nope, it didn't matter, I, I still got hit, like crazy and I still fell apart when she was gone um, and I told myself that the only way out is through and yeah. you have to feel the feelings something my therapist used to say to me is uh, resisting is persisting if you resist the feelings they're just gonna keep persisting yeah. I like to keep that into my head all the time because I think it's it's absolutely true the more you run away from something the faster it's gonna chase you mm and um grief especially you can't outrun it's it's going to catch you one way or another and i think that that i you know was able to say you know i'm going to be comfortable in this and i'm going to let myself grieve as long as i am, i i need to i'm going to let myself feel the feelings i'm going to let it hurt i'm going to not sleep for two weeks if i can't um and i'm just going to go through the process because it's it's not going to get any better if i don't and i think part of the reason i was so comfortable with that is that like i do watch movies that do that i i always force myself to feel the things you know at least when it comes to to sadness and and stuff like that because i've learned in my own mental health journey that it's when i stop feeling the things and when i Hent them up inside that they just get to a point that you can't control them anymore and a dangerous level and grief is the exact same way
0: so just to tie this off and and to kind of bring back you know your your own talents in this is that Mm -hmm. is, is that what you feel the the benefit of sharing stories like you know like film and like books is is that you know that validation that allowing somebody to feel the feelings that sharing of experiences um in a way it kind of does what we hope that people who grieve with us do and share the burden of either mental health or grief or any other thing like this
4: absolutely um i write it with others in mind. Um, I write with the idea of what would I have wanted to read? What would I have wanted to see? um, You know, what would have made me feel less alone? And and, um, in my my first book in Flirting with Fame, my main character deals heavily with anxiety as well as uh, scars on her face from an accident. And I have scars on me from my own mental health issues from when I was younger and um, they were scars that I've run away from my entire life. I never let myself embrace them. I saw them as a point of shame um, instead of a point of pride. Um, I had a friend point out to me that they're my war wounds. They show that I survived something that was very terrible and very painful. I wanted to sort of encapsulate that in my book um, where You know, the character finally can learn to embrace her own scars, her own anxieties. Um, She doesn't go through any, you know, drastic she's not fixed by the end. Um, But she learns that it's okay to be flawed because we are all flawed. There's no perfect human being. (laughs) Um, And I think that it's important to write flawed characters. Um, I, you know, I read too many books as a kid where the character was just, you know, something you could never live up to. And I think that, you know, we see it now all the time in movies. I mean, gosh, I love watching the clips of the the girls watching Little Mermaid mm-hmm. and seeing themselves on screen as a princess. And, right. and I think that representation in general, whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, color of skin, whether it's. Disability, sexuality
0: disabilities disabilities,
4: gender anything everything
0: um
4: all of us deserve to see ourselves in some in some mediums and deserve the validation that i felt when i saw veda on screen the the feeling of i'm not alone the feeling of it's okay that i am how i am maybe there's hope for me and you know i don't have to suffer this by myself because there's other people who get it and that I think is one of the most important aspects of art. I think it's the the most important thing we can do as artists is um, make other people see themselves and go, "Okay, I'm not alone and and then sometimes I just write for fun and and just want them to have a good time, like my second book is just fun. <laughs> But but there's still aspects of mental health in it actually too things that I've struggled with you myself. So it. <laughs> you can't get away from it. It's all going to end up in my books. I think everybody should feel how I I felt when I saw my girl. And yeah, maybe I cried a lot, but I also walked away going, "Wow, there's other kids my age who might have the same things as me, and I'm not totally alone, and um, that matters." Thank you so yeah. much. Oh, thank you.
7: As late As the hour may be I beg you please
5: Stay a little longer
2: As late As the eye may be, Cling to me
7: Hello, my name is Jonathan Barkan from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am the creator and director of the upcoming documentary Mental Health and Horror, and I am the executive producer of Canada's viral phenomenon film, Skinamarink. I am so happy that you are here um, and I want to take this moment to to
0: thank you proper in front of people because when I first had this idea, we were just talking about this before we started, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who gets an idea and just starts running and just starts writing and, and sometimes actually just presses publish before thinking about what other people do and how they do it. Um, this time around, before I went down the rabbit hole, of uh, a podcast episode dedicated to uh, mental health and film knew full well that you had a, your own project that you were working on. So I, I approached you and I said, this is what I'd like to do. Um, and I wanted to thank you for your generosity and giving my wee little uh, soapbox here your blessing and also for uh, agreeing to join because you're a busy person, uh, as, well, as you've already shown.
7: Yeah, but, you know, one thing I want to say is that I, I don't claim any sort of ownership over that concept of of a documentary that talks about the ways that film and cinema can help those who live with with a mental illness i think my approach is a little a little different in that i'm using a very specific mm-hmm. you know genre of film that many deem scary and not in that it's meant to be scary it's that the idea that it exists and that there are people who seek it that it's scary that it is worrisome that people believe it causes violence or that it creates and exacerbates mental illness Mm -hmm. so you know when you came and asked me my immediate reaction was why are you coming to me (laughs) (laughs) i don't own this no, but I really appreciated the thoughtfulness, and I'm really happy to be here because I cherish you. Uh, you know, you've know, you been a friend of my wife's for a very long time, and, and she values and appreciates you enormously. So automatically, by extension, I do as well. But by getting to know you, it's, it's just such a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, shucks. You have brought a film uh, to talk about which fascinates me. You brought a film to me that for the first time, I don't entirely know where you're going with this. I can see ideas. I can see themes. The others, as they were told to me, as we, I want to talk about this movie, uh, I immediately, the light switch turned on. I was like, okay, I know exactly why we're talking about that movie. Or then as I began to watch it, I would latch on to this thing or this thing or this thing so i have like a few little breadcrumbs but generally speaking i actually don't know where you're going to go with uh, relic from 2020 not to be confused with the relic let's get that no. out of the way <laughs> this film is directed by natalie erica james also written by her uh in association with christian white um it stars emily mortimer robin nevin uh bella heathcote and it is an australian film Uh, about a family drama um, a mother and her daughter going back to their uh her childhood homestead um where her mother the grandmother of this of this Mm -hmm. family is slipping more and more into dementia and the interesting thing is that the house around them starts to basically become this entity uh that that poses a problem for all involved. Um that is the worst selling of a movie ever, I think. <laughs> but not at um, all. <laughs> I am curious when I suggested this to you, you were actually quite quick to latch on to Relic as what you wanted to talk about. So the obvious
7: beginning question is why? Relic holds a very interesting place in my heart. A couple of weeks before the pandemic was officially announced. Uh, I was in Toronto, uh, and I got word from my mother. She said, um, "Your grandmother, who had been suffering for a, from a few years from dementia, uh, she was on her deathbed. So if I wanted to see her one last time, I needed to fly out. Uh, my grandparents, they." Well, now my grandfather lives in, in Israel, so I needed to fly very, you know, I needed to book something immediately and fly out. Ariel, my wife and I, we, we got the tickets, had to wait the two, three days until the flight flew out. And when we landed, I turned on my phone. We landed in Tel Aviv. I turned on my phone and within a minute I got a WhatsApp message from my mom that my grandmother had passed on the, during the flight out. Without even having time to really process that information, I had to make a near two-hour drive from Tel Aviv airport to where my grandfather lives, uh, lives so that I could immediately get dressed and then go to the cemetery where my mom asked if I would say a few words on behalf of our side of the family. Mm. And then I was also asked to be one of the six men who carry the body from the entrance of the cemetery to the grave site. So I went through a lot in a relatively short period of time. And then uh, during the rest of my time there, it was spent with the family that lived you know all of my family that lived there and kind of hearing their stories hearing how they're doing um and then being there for my mom who also had flown out and had arrived in time but um you know she needed support and so did my grandfather and so i really kind of set a lot of myself aside and came back to the US uh to Canada i apologize Because the pandemic was announced and it was basically get out of Israel or you're stuck here. And so then there was everything to do with focusing on how to live and exist in this newly pandemic world. And the fact that I wasn't home. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I, I'd gotten to know Toronto fairly well by that time, but um, there wasn't time for me to sit down and grieve. I right. sit down and face the reality that my grandmother who's no longer with me, was no longer there. And I'd already in you know, gone through those periods where when I had the opportunity to visit, I would sit with my grandmother and my grandfather, and she would look at me and smile and and everything was wonderful. But every twenty to thirty minutes she would just turn to my grandfather and touch his wrist gently and say, you know, in, in Russian, because they were originally from Russia, uh, she would say, who is that? Right. So that, you know, was obviously very painful. But so I everything was going out. I didn't have time to grieve. And Relic came out. And I'd heard amazing things. And so I want to say I'd received a screener for it. And... Ariel and I, we put it on the TV, we watched it. I didn't know that it was an allegory for dementia at the time. Mm -hmm. I knew the basic idea that... You know, a mother and daughter go to the grandmother's home, who the grandmother has been missing. And like a few days later, she suddenly appears, but something's off, right? That was how it had been sold to me. That's all. Yeah. And everyone was saying, it's so good. It's so impactful. It's so beautifully directed. It's this, it's that. And I said, I need to watch this. And in a genre film, something's off could be anything. Exactly, horror. It can be, you know, that she is possessed. It could be that suddenly she's an alien. It could be that, you know, it's Tremors Seven. It's a sneak. (laughs) It's a sneak sequel. We don't know exactly. Um, (laughs) So, so I watched it, and I saw this three-generation family in the span of you know a film's runtime. Face the, the monstrosity that is dementia and how it has a devastating effect mm-hmm. on family and family dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I wept. It's the only way I can say it. It wasn't, you know, I cried. It wasn't, yeah. I sobbed. I just wept over and over. Nonstop. And that gave me the opportunity to face and start the grieving process of losing my grandmother. And I rewatched it this morning to prepare for this, uh, for this podcast. And only a few days after I bought a ticket to Israel because my grandfather is starting to show signs of dementia and this is probably going to be the last time i see him alive and again it probably wrecked you oh i let out a lot of tears before it was noon <laughs> <laughs> boy you
0: know i you know i 300 episodes into this thing I've always been thankful that people like come over to my apartment and like go 10 stops out of their way. Uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, like I make jokes about like how I need to be giving my guests buttons or something or or, like some sort of actual (laughs) token. I think I'm well beyond buttons. I think whatever I need to give you in, in thank you for that. It it probably comes in a bottle. Um, (laughs) if not as rolled in paper, um,
7: Hey, either one. I'm fine uh, with those. Maybe both. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, one of the things that is just absolutely incredible about this is that there's been a lot of stories where you watch one generation try to square them, like you know, the 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 child becoming the parent. That's been done a lot. Um, it's not terribly often where you get three generations into the same, where you have to watch the grandchild you know, witness the parent, witness the grandparent, you know, in this um, situation that affects not everybody, but a lot of people. And I think that's what makes this movie, what certainly, you know, what makes your experience um, extra complicated because it's one thing when you're going through it with your own parent, Um, you know, nobody wants to go through this. let's, Let's be honest. You know, we yes. all know that our we all know that most of us are going to bury our parents. You know, at one point or another, we become prepared for that. Um, you don't want to emotionally and mentally lose your parents while they are still here in a physical form because that's just yeah. I think it's especially intricate when you have a grandchild that is of age because um sam the granddaughter in this movie she's early 20s you know she's old she's old enough and mature enough to really understand the gravity of this situation so along with what she's going through and what you're going through um of witnessing you know your grandparent this person who has been such a part of your upbringing um and and watching them slip away you're also seeing the weight on your parents you know you're all like that real crushing of the spirit um i can recall um when my uh paternal grandfather was passing away like when he was brought into the hospital for what would ultimately be like his last his last day um my father in the hall uh really he finally lost it and um was like basically on my shoulder crying. And my father was not a crier, so this was very, very rare. But I remember holding him while he was and thinking, why are you so much smaller than me? Like, why Why do I feel like I could physically pick you up right now for the first time in my existence? That, that That's so hard to square. You know, as a child with a parent, losing the parent, just on a surface level, let alone into something like
7: dementia where they are here, but they're not here. Yeah, it's... There's an added element to to this as well that will make th- that I have a sneaking suspicion will have you asking me why this was a movie that I picked but and I'm gonna go into spoiler territories here so for anyone who is listening and really is fascinated by this film, pause now and come back to it because the ending is something is something um, so in Relic the way that the grandmother. Really starts to turn into this monstrous vision is through darkening of skin. She's a very pale kind of woman, and so these bruises that they originally see them as um are striking. They are so deep. it's not even like blue and purple. they're black, yeah, and they're and they're big and they start spreading um, and so at the end. Of the film, there's this really devastating scene where Kay and Sam, the mother and daughter, are almost out of the house. Sam, the 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 granddaughter, is on the front porch and Emily Mortimer Kay is inside and she says, I can't leave her. I, I can't leave her and and closes the door and says, you know, the, basically saying, like, this isn't your cross to bear. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't have to be here for this. I will do this. And she goes back and picks up her mother who was on the floor beaten and, and subdued and broken and takes her to a bed and starts and just caresses her. And you see that there that her skin is literally falling off of this black husk and Emily Mortimer in what I believe is a fantastic performance of just extremely restrained grief starts peeling away the skin that is, that is this monstrous twisted Swiss cheese version of what she remembered and she just has to accept who her mother is now mm-hmm. and tears everything away and then lays with her and and the granddaughter has come in at this point and the three of them lay in bed next to each other, the grandmother, the mother, the granddaughter. And the granddaughter just crying, looking at her mother stroking the shoulders of her of her grandmother notices the just peeking out from her mother's t-shirt on her back a black spot Mm -hmm. and i bring this up that there's an added element because in ashkenazi jews There are forms of dementia that are hereditary that that can be genetically passed down, or at least there's a greater risk of them. And my grandmother who passed away and my grandfather, who I'm going to see are my maternal grandparents. And my mom is, as she's getting older, she's having more and more trouble finding words. Hmm. and remembering where she put things and and connecting sentences. And she has checked and she is at a greater risk, which means that I am very likely at a greater risk. And so this movie isn't just a way that connects me to the grief of losing my grandmother and now the experience of going to see my grandfather it is also a way for me to recognize and face the fear of what i may become like it gives you the language the visual the emotional the spiritual yeah. language yeah because I've seen the horror version. Mm-hmm. I've seen the worst that can come effectively in a way mm-hmm. I've seen it in real life mm-hmm. and I've seen it in cinema where it's this exaggerated version that there is literally a monster and, and the house is an allegory for dementia, the twists and turns, the loss of memory, the, the, Full hallways of boxes and tchotchkes that just empties into nothingness. Um, the rot that keeps on
0: spreading, where walls yeah. will will crumble and just like decay in front of your eyes.
7: Exactly. Mm. I've seen the the worst, so I can prepare rather than dread. What's fascinating to me
0: because even though I watched it and wasn't sure where you were going with this and would not have guessed, (laughs) yeah, is that when we get to that scene you just described, Kay and Sam are tending to Edna, helping her shed her skin, helping her finally just embrace this is the version of me now. The one that you knew is gone. This is what you have to accept. This is the new Edna. The new Edna, while frightening, because now she is this shiny, black, almost alien-looking being, is beautiful. It is one of the most striking bits of makeup and and embodiment of of a person uh that i can think of that i've ever seen on a film like it is it is beyond human um so on the one hand it is very strange i would never actually say like once they start pulling the skin it's not what i'd call gross like when you when we describe it it seems like it would be a lot when in reality it's really not like anybody who heard what you described and is like if you've ever just picked a scab that's you know that's basically how you see it it's it's yeah depicted very very gently very tenderly and there's there's
7: no blood no there is no gore no it's it's the, the concept is gory but the presentation is not yeah and what remains
0: when they're done is Okay, this is the new Edna. This is the Edna that is now fully in the realm of dementia. But that does not mean that she is necessarily lesser. She is this entity now that, while arresting and perhaps unsettling, is fascinating
7: after everything that the three of them had gone through over the few days that this movie takes place in where there was violence and chaos this you know arresting version of edna who again the the vision is monstrous but she smiles yeah And she just lays down very peacefully with this soft expression on her face. There is no evil. There's no malevolence. There's just acceptance and grief. Mm -hmm. Uh, You
0: have spent a long time over the last year or so, uh, two years, I've lost count because time is a flat circle. um, Talking to others um, about um, mental health, mental health and horror films specifically without giving your whole game away. What have you learned? Um, Because I've, I've learned a great deal in just, two weeks of doing this and having a handful of conversations you've you've spent much more time with it than I have what have you learned that a person who um you know may not this may not be their reality like it may just be something that they know somebody who knows somebody or they hear about it bantered about um you know but they've never really thought about it all that much what have you learned that um you know you could pass on um that people um who have turned to film to help them on their mental health journey have
7: shared with you? In a lot of ways, it's obviously unique to each individual person, how they use cinema to navigate their individual illnesses and traumas. But there are also patterns. And some of those patterns are you have those who have endured very specific kinds of trauma, such as physical abuse, um, sexual assault, a a physical abnormality, whatever whatever it might be. They kind of actively seek the content that directly deals with that. Kind of similar to what I described with myself and with, with Relic. There is comfort in knowing that you are not alone, in, in having been hurt, in having been abused, in having been different. Mm-hmm. Um, because so many times when we're in the midst of that trauma, we really do feel alone. We really do feel like there there isn't any way that anyone can understand that this hurt is unique is it is it also compounded with shame oh absolutely at least f- for myself mm-hmm. yeah, i i can say so i don't for the people that we interviewed a lot of them do feel the stigmas mm-hmm. that that are associated with their mental yeah illness that that was something that was asked about you know just in in broad terms what you know when they hear the term mental illness what are some of the stigmas that they have seen attached to it every single person immediately it became personal yeah immediately that question of the stigmas associated with mental illness it was personal Mm -hmm. this is how I have been viewed differently. This is how I have been treated as lesser than this is what I needed and what wasn't delivered. And it feels so unique, but then you put on a movie because what else can you do in many instances? You know, I know that in, in my bouts of serious depression, it's hard to do anything. And even watching a movie feels like I accomplished something because I invested into this. Yeah, yeah. And I put on those movies that speak to me in the moment because I see that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. I see someone else going through it and I relate. By cheering them on to get through whatever crazy event is going on, I can in a way cheer for myself by feeling rage at what they're enduring. Right. I'm in a way feeling the rage of what I'm going through myself. And if I have to cry, if something horrible happens and I'm just sobbing for them and what they've endured, what they've gone through or what they are, they physically suffered. Um, it feels like I'm crying for myself. It's catharsis. And it's, it's catharsis. Yeah, it really is. Putting aside for a moment, everything that I've said about relic yeah. horror by and large, is not meant to be a subtle genre. (laughs) It is, it really wants to get in your face. And so, I think that's why, for many people, horror films have a specifically intense impact, is because they're not trying to hide anything. It's in your face. It's gruesome. It's violent. It's whatever. But it's a lot of it. Yeah. And And that kind of Intense amount for some people is exactly What what they need because yeah, you spend 90 minutes Being pummeled but You know taking it and feeling like a champion because you see yourself in the final girl or in the survivor, you know That's that's me. That's what I'm going through and then you come out victorious. It's it's an incredible feeling when it, when that feeling hits.
0: Thank you very much.
7: Thank, thank you. It's such a pleasure. And thank you for giving me a place to let out a few tears because I have needed the reason.
3: My girl, my girl don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? Come on, tell me, baby. In the pond, in the pond, where the sun don't ever shine, I was a beautiful old night too.
6: I'm Natalie Davey, and I am the co-host for the podcast with Frame Bulls, and I've been friends with Ryan since we were in high school, so that's many, many years. (laughs) And And where are you from? I'm from Toronto.
0: And we are in Toronto. We have introduced a live segment into the show because I wanted to get a little bit more light into it. It's been very um, close um, conversations from my office and I wanted to get a little bit more oxygen into the show because it's a, you know, it's a heavy show. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but still a lively show. It's been a lot of life to this. So I just wanted to infuse a little bit and um, you were nice enough to meet me in your current neighborhood, my old neighborhood. It's always trippy coming back here. Um, to talk about a film that I was really fascinated that you chose, okay. um, a short film, this segment is probably going to go longer than the film, uh, called In the Shadow of the Pines from 2020. It's directed by uh, Anne Akizumi, um, and it's a film about a woman um, reconciling herself with her childhood and her upbringing. Um, and there's a lot more to it that I'm not summarizing very well why did you choose this film there was there, this was really really fascinating choice
6: well you asked me to consider like yeah. what was a piece that I would sort of what would come to mind if I was considering mental health and film yeah and so I've used this film this specific short film as a teaching tool and I've used it in a you know, in an English classroom for grade twelves, and I really love it because it's got stop animation happening throughout the text and a lot of collage work and that was a lot of my own research was dealing with collage and kind of artographical concepts to help bring about bigger kind of emotional educational ideas and so the film is actually I would say Anne navigating grief and her own goodbye to her father. So her father has passed on, this is her chance to use art to help her to not just reconnect with him, because he's gone now, but to basically, I would say, reconnect with herself. And so if that's not like a mental health practice or tool, like using art to to connect with the self, to find a way forward, then I don't know what mental health practices are. I mean, yeah. like we really, I think we think about that language of mental health Often attached to kind of the the very sort of reactionary yeah. moment of somebody's crisis, mm-hmm. like mental health crisis, often go together in in language. Right. But I would say. For me, uh, because of my kind of reframing tendencies, and I, I, I do like to try and sort of not skew necessarily towards the positive because I think that's a limited way of looking at that term, but I do want to reframe ideas and tools and thinking for, for potential growth and health. Then I mean, oh,
0: the tagline of this show is cinematic passion and perspective, so you're you very much about the yeah. perspective. I think I even said that when yeah. you were on, we talked about you pig. You're, you're quite right when you talk about how the animation is... An inn because it's it's really
2: it's charming
0: it seems inviting it seems um, innocuous innocent uh, you know we mentioned before we started recording how some of these topics can be very very heavy um, certainly a, you know a woman going through her grief and a woman talking about her identity that can seem very very weighty and something that people may not may pass by but when you wrap it in you know stop motion animation like you, you know figures that look like they should be talking about how it's almost Christmas Eve. Right, sure. Um, It allows people, a way into to the space and makes them feel a little bit
2: more comfortable.
6: Okay, and I would also say they are interruptive. So like, they, my grandfather was a caretaker, her father was a caretaker. When he calls out her, see like I get actually more <laughs> when I think about it, because when he calls out her name and says Mayu, I picture my grandfather and his love for his sons, his love for me, and how his career path was perhaps different from what he lived out in his mind and in a love for books in a way that he didn't get to spend his time doing on the job Mm -hmm. and I feel like so my own mental health care has been what was like showcased in this film so it was like an interruptive act to see this character in that stop motion form, because I could literally go, stop. (laughs) Like I wanted to stop and just sit with the character for a second. It's not my dad, it's her dad. I'm not sort of trying to absorb Anne's experience, but at the same time I could relate, Mm -hmm. and therefore the film became like a tool for me in terms of my own mental health work.
0: I think the other thing that's really interesting about this film is along a lot of people's mental health journey, at some point or another, they need to square themselves with the past, mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: because it can be that the past, been, while a lot of this can be chemical, a lot of this can be uh, behavioral or environmental that can bring you to a place that may not be completely ideal. Um, and it might have even been your show that I heard this on, I got to be entirely honest, okay. where somebody was talking about going through therapy, and their therapist had asked them, have you forgiven your parents? Oh, yeah, not... Yeah for mistreating you, but for just, they do the best they could, yep. right? Like I've mentioned once before in the show already that we're only in the last generation or two really paying attention to this shit. Yep. You know, that yep. for the longest time, it was either mistreated, misdiagnosed, ignored, or just tamped down. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's not, I mean, she's not squaring herself or like, you know, with any kind of mistreatment or abuse, but she is reconciling herself with, you know, her past, her own past, it's it's really, a you know, a beautiful tie-in to that and the mental
6: as well. Absolutely, and specifically, I think, for Anne, it was a lack of communication, not just communication between her and her father, but also in herself, mm-hmm. trying to kind of find the right words. Yeah. And so this artistic practice of making this film, of, of creating these little characters that then would, like, grow. To the size of the screen because of obviously the beauty of the film is like enlarging these tiny parts of herself that actually like come together to make a whole. I don't know, when I showed this film to a room full of like 29, 18 year olds, 17 and 18 year olds, I had students in there with very mature, I mean teenagers are amazing anyways, but really mature thoughtful emotional responses to to like A woman navigating her own story and I I think that that just points to how film can be a tool, a Mm -hmm. reframing mental health tool in one's toolbox. You can go and sit in in a room and watch somebody else's story and it can help you to make sense of your own.
0: Which is, I think that that's come up several times now that people have talked about how it's given them the language, um, it's given them the validation, uh, it's, it's given them the acknowledgement um, that their story, while their own, is not single, you know, that it, that it is a human story that other people are experiencing it in some way, shape or form. Um, I got a small grin when I watched this short because, uh, you know, you've been on the show two times now and both of the films you've chosen have involved mushrooms. So I'm thinking it's going to be a trend. I'm going to get you back on to talk about Phantom Thread and The Beguiled. Um, but I, I, I did love that last touch about how she talks about um, the memory of foraging in the forest yes. for and for this yeah, one rare one that's yeah. really hard to find because it's this kind of charming little metaphor of here's something that you only find in the most inhospitable place yeah. in the dark you know usually near shit, yeah, um, yeah. but is nourishing, has value, yeah. is, you know, succulent, if, you know. I, I love that as yeah. a little, like, short-handed
2: touch in
6: yeah. Yeah, 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 and I think for her that it's the kind of moment that calls to something that she didn't recognize in her childhood as beautiful yeah, and only now can, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yet has to recognize its beauty because of its yeah. loss. So So there's something about how growing up, how changing, how going through pain actually helps us to find the beauty, to find the mushroom in the dark.
0: Yeah. We've talked on this show uh, earlier about um, the Pixar film, Inside Out. Yeah, yeah. And how in that film, memories that started out sad become happy, or memories that started out happy become sad, and and how that can,
6: you know, inform who you are. And that you need both. Yes. Right? Like, that was the whole point of that film. And I... Watching that with my eight-year-old and then my nine-year-old niece was really powerful. Really? Like watching with the two of them. Would have been like watching this film with my students. Okay. So there's something about watching a younger mind make sense of a really complex human experience and maybe get it better than you. Yeah. Because your own, it's me. I'm saying you, but it's me. Look, so maybe my own stuff. Probably is me too. Getting, you're smarter than me. But <laughs> my stuff getting in the way. And then it takes like a younger fresher perspective to make sense of it for mm-hmm. you or to just shine a light on something like yeah. turn the flashlight on
0: you've been working on your project now for uh, two years
6: thereabouts a, yeah. yes yeah we're going into our uh, second year
0: what so. have you because your your conversations often come back to mental health yes like a lot of the time um in you know in ways that are not specific to you and your sister right Uh, you know it's it's often what the guest brings to you yeah what have you learned about just what other people are going through and what you may not have known before when you started this project
6: i think if i were to sum it up it would be something that i read in an essay this morning actually by a writer named matthew salas and he's he's sort of famous for his novel writing but also for his life as a widow so he has sort of put this that's part of Of the persona that he sort of puts out there into the world. And one of the things that he has said is that grief is both universal and isolated. And. I think that that is something that maybe has come through (laughs) Refrainable's interviews to both the two of us, when Rebecca and I listen to our guests and we ask those sort of probing questions that bring about a lot of vulnerability in us, but also in the guests if they're willing, is that there is an isolated experience of just being human. That, That Having the language to talk about mental health can maybe help to... To bring us a little bit closer to the universe.
0: And what have you learned about yourself?
6: Oh, that I'm a whole lot more messed up than I thought. <laughs> <either. laughs> but that I'm actually maybe more comfortable with that. Like I think I'm am okay a little bit more these days. Two years in with my mess, I think I was really good at kind of containing who I was. And, and when Rebecca asked me to start that project, right, to sort of say, okay, we're going to do this podcast together. And we're just I said I was doing for her, right. And then it has become definitely uh, my part of my own therapeutic work. Yeah. Doing it for me. Yeah. So that was um, unexpected.
0: And do you, you know, you brought this up as a, a really lovely encapsulation of what others have seen. Has, has, there, has there been any piece of art, you know, outside of film, you know, we obviously have a, um, a relationship with music. Um, has there been anything else for you that you've found has given you the language or you felt seen on your own path of mental wellness, mental health and learning these things about yourself?
6: I don't know how to sum that up in one piece
0: probably lots I'm sure. Yeah, right? there's
6: so much. My dad and Rebecca and I were recently at the AGO, which is the Art Gallery of Ontario, for those who don't know it, and there was, and I think the exhibit's gone now, but there was this really amazing sort of montage exhibit of like of this Cuban creator's work, and it was literally all of this furniture. That was placed oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah I in think a I big saw that. Room. Oh my okay. gosh, it was phenomenal. So he did a combo of furniture and like, so basically family yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I did see that.
6: and film. Right. And it was just so powerful. Like we the three of us stayed in that room forever. And now, like my husband and I went on on our honeymoon to Cuba, but then we also went back for a visit and we tried to repeat that visit yeah, yeah. and it didn't go very well. Like it just like the everything had fallen in that one resort into disrepair. And mm-hmm what i don't know there was a real metaphor in that in terms of like what happens if you don't tend to to the work like what and what happens when you can't right right mean, like in, that, in that very specific resort the money just wasn't there for things to be tended to so what what are the staff supposed to do what is supposed to be what is supposed to be the experience walking away from it like yeah certainly a lot of learning but yeah i would say that that exhibit was something but i mean it really honestly it happens every day my tiktok account (laughs) my reframeable's tiktok account is literally become it has emerged into community art walks so i walk around and i look for some random piece of art that i find that's going to inform my day and it's become a really sort of fun project of mine to just look for something and the other day it was somebody's next to somebody's steering wheel I saw like a little pipe cleaner heart and obviously somebody's kid or partner had given them this and they had specifically placed it there and I think it's hilarious that I got like 45 likes on this little pipe cleaner part but I think it points to what people are looking for yeah I think people are looking for little examples of not necessarily always art they might not have that word in they're their mind but they're looking for gestures yeah. of thought and care yeah. that do exist in the world but yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to do the work to find the
0: power um, the one last thing I want to ask you is you uh, did a show recently um, with uh, your guest was one of the hosts on um, CHFI
6: Oh, Caitlin Green. Yes, she's wonderful.
0: And she talked about, and, and you all talked about active listening. Yes. In in the course of that episode, and that I think is one of the takeaways I've come from uh, having these conversations and preparing for this show and okay. thinking about all of this is active listening. Um, I don't think it's easy. No. Um, for people, I, I don't think it's the kind of thing where I can tell people just practice. No, yeah. But I think it is something if we all could try,
2: you know, even give it our
0: best shot, it would help the people in our lives who are going through mm-hmm. something um, either long-term or short-term. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, I think I, I, A, I agree, but I do think there are some things we can do to prepare, specifically around mental health. I think when we know that somebody's hurting, we can do the work before the conversation to at least go and do a little bit of reading about what that might mean for that person so that we're not obligating in the conversation um, for them to be teacher. Yeah, yeah, they can yeah, just yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. When my cousin um, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, when we were kids, so I would have been 12. and. I didn't understand there was not enough language out there about it. She lived a really isolated existence because of there just not being the available knowledge. Yeah. There is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do the work yeah. to make life easier for those we love and those we need to learn to love as we love ourselves. And yeah, I think we can do that work to help make those conversations safer moments.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So that's episode 300 of The Matinee Cast, and I am beyond grateful to my guests, I am deeply in their debt. My most profound love, respect, and thanks goes out to Jonathan Barkhan, Matthew Brown, Natalie Davey, Samantha Joyce, Jim Laskowski, and Rosa Para. On the topic of names, this episode is dedicated for entirely different reasons to Jamie Dew and Stephen Luscombe. These men have taught my sorry ass more about mental health than anyone else I have ever encountered, and I am a better person for knowing them both. I don't feel like it's appropriate to plug where you can find this show or what else is coming. All of that should be self-explanatory, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm pretty easy to find. I did want to try my best to be a good listener for my guests and soak in their stories as i piece together this show i could hear moments where i talked a little long or didn't ask that extra question and for that i am sorry and i hope you will forgive me uh, at the end of the day my hope is to keep trying keep learning and keep striving to be better and make more space for anyone who needs it finally when i started thinking about how i wanted to wrap up this show i knew that my own words wouldn't do it justice so instead I turn to a man who more and more embodies the sort of curious and empathetic poet i strive to be and the sort of safe space i hope to offer for anyone whoever needs it so in the words of leonard cohen friend when you speak this carefully i know it is because you don't know what to say i listen in such a way so as not to add to your confusion i make some reply at every opportunity so as not to compound your loneliness thus the conversation continues under an umbrella of optimism. If you suggest a feeling, I affirm it. If you provoke, I accept the challenge. The surface is thick, but it has flaws. And hopefully we can trip on one of them. I'm Ryan, and I'll see you at the matinee.